Hi, I'm Calvin Pugh, and this is HIV Connect, a podcast from the International Association of Providers of AIDS Care, or IAPAC, that brings into focus what living with HIV looks like today. In each episode, I connect with clinicians, experts, and community leaders in conversations about clinical and psychosocial management issues, such as aging, stigma, and sexual health topics that matter to people living with HIV. Today's episode is all about injectable art, and my guests are Moises Augusto Rosario, who has lived with HIV for the past 37 years. He's the director of treatment for NMAC and the HIV 50 Plus Strong and Healthy program. He has done domestic and global work on HIV treatment preparedness, treatment education, and community grant making with the Tides Foundation, the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition, and NMAC. He has worked at the People with AIDS Coalition of New York as the editor of Sida Ehora magazine and was a member of Active New York. And Dr. Rupa Patel, who is an infectious disease physician and public health expert. She's a research associate professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Patel currently practices medicine in Washington, D.C. at Whitman Walker Health and has led efforts to integrate long-acting injectable cabotagravir for treatment and prevention into routine practice and by using non-traditional implementation strategies to reach underserved populations. In the more than 40 years since the beginning of the HIV pandemic, we have come a long way from the introduction of modern antiretroviral therapy, or ART, in 1996, which consisted of multiple pills taken multiple times a day, to the newly available option of long-acting injectable ART dosed six times a year. This shift in HIV treatment delivery has been touted as a game-changer to mitigating the Achilles heel of ART, notably maintaining near-perfect adherence. On this episode of HIV Connect, we'll explore this new treatment modality and its potential impact on the science of HIV as it is implemented in real life within clinical settings across the United States. Thank you both for joining me. So can you describe the evolution of antiretrovirals or ART from the one pill option in the mid-1980s to the combination ART regimens and ultimately single tablet regimens? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. I think this is an exciting era. We've we've moved from handfuls of pills that had high toxicity, meaning you know they were putting people in bed, you know people couldn't get to work, and now through great coordinated efforts of the scientific community, we've moved towards one pill once a day um, that treats HIV and also prevents HIV, which is exciting, and then. Um, the components in that pill have become more potent, means they're more effective, and the side effects are um, less. You know, a little bit of nausea to almost nothing. It is great, the evolution of the treatment uh, for HIV since the you know, late 80s, mid-90s, and then now the 2020. And, you know, I, from a personal experience, I would put an antiretroviral as quickly as I went to 500 T-cells, and I'm talking in 1987, uh, 87, 88, and the only thing that we had was ACT, which it was, it had a lot of side effects, but it was the only treatment, and it's still the medical uh, researchers thought that, you know, the sooner, the better you could preserve your immune system. Uh, But then the evolution, as you said, Rupa, has been amazing. And we have had to go through a journey of, you know, many, many pills when we started talking about combinations and many, many side effects. 
and very um, nuanced about how to take the medication, like with the proteins. People had to learn that take it with food, without food, a certain time, exactly eight hours, three pills, four pills, every eight hours. And it was a little complicated to, you know, develop some sort of a discipline about taking your pills. Also, not because of the interrupting your day, but also the side effects. And today, with the long-acting injectables, I think it's a great uh, advance in order to facilitate for the patient the use of the antiretrovirals. And, you know, every two months, and there are going to be others that may maybe every six months that will help with that aspect. My side effects that have been noticed are the one in the area where the injection is given. But one thing that, and I don't know what do you think about it, but like, it's great that we have these new advances, but also I think it would be important to understand what do they mean in the history of the individual taking the antiretroviral, their history and adherence, and even resistance, the potentiality of developing resistance. Yeah, you know, we've got all these options, but what does the individual want? You know, we've got to tailor the care to what people want and choice. Um, but it's also not even the individual. It's also what's the setting too? Can the settings keep up? And to, to go back to the first question, within such a short time span for a field to go from the discovery of a virus or the entity and name it, and then to go into um, going through an evolution of pills and I want to highlight, you know, this one pill once a day is smaller than a multivitamin. And um, I think it's really going to be exciting to see that we had an injection come out in 2022, it was every month, you know, and then it showed every two months. So I think the duration is going to get longer. And we're going to talk about that later. I think the needle size is going to get smaller. The volume is going to get smaller. And most importantly, where we give it is going to change, you know, from a deep intramuscular to maybe something in the stomach that looks like an insulin injection and actually will be better than, you know, what we see is in terms of that insulin pre-made pen that we see maybe our grandmother getting or aunt or something. So this is an exciting dawn. I couldn't agree more. And with injectables being so relatively new as an option for HIV treatment, can you explain what injectable art is and the key differences between injectable and oral options? In terms of the medication itself, it's been referred to many things, LAI, so long-acting injections. And essentially, it is taking antiretroviral medication. And remember, we treat with multiple classes in terms of having what we would say an effective regimen so that we meet viral load suppression and, and then we can get to U equals U, which we'll talk about later in terms of a public health standpoint. And so what happened is we went ahead and found two medications that can be put together to make an effective regimen. It's a um, NNRTI and an integrase inhibitor, ropivirine and cabotegravir. So these are just some medications today that are FDA approved that can be coupled together. And it's in the form of what I would call a large volume medication, three milliliters, just to give you an idea, a vaccine that goes in your arm that we do every day at CVS or Walgreens or your pharmacy or your doctor's office. That's about um, half 
a milliliter. And so this injection goes into the deep intramuscular space. That's relevant because that's just something that we don't typically do at home. It's equivalent to a syphilis injection for people that know injections that are going for sexual health or care for HIV. And it's an injectable format. And why say that? Because tomorrow we'll maybe have an implant or we'll have a different formulation. And the interval is important. Today's injection is every one to two months, but tomorrow's injection will be every six months or maybe every year. And I think we can't just call it injectable into retroviral therapy. We have to think about where it goes, the volume, how often we have to give it. And then of course, what medicines are on it. What's wonderful is we have an integrase inhibitor and that's, that's a very effective class of drugs. The fact that it's an injectable, is kind of like the first time that we have to look at this mode of treatment and that, you know, as patient doctors have to figure out how they are going to build on that is not just only go and get your injection, you have to monitor that when you go and visit your doctor. That is the first time, like you said, that we have this mode for HIV, right? Like we had once a day and still people were facing some challenges with their adherence. Uh, but one thing that I, I think that would be important to consider is that it's not like we're gonna bring the injection like it's a, it's a new thing for everybody, right? So that when we talk about it, that we think about the young individual that is the first time they're getting treatment, but that we also think about those individuals that took treatment from the early days that have been sequentially taking antiretrovirals and that also have developed some routines that they are afraid to break, you know, to stop taking pills because they know how to do it. So I just think that it would be great to put it into context for the population that we're talking about in terms of age, in terms of like relationship with the treatment and, and their healthcare. I completely agree with you, Moses, as a person living with HIV. That thought of letting go of my 7 p.m. alarm seems a little scary after after almost eight years. That because it's built a routine around it. And so many, so many of us have like found rooting and foundation in those, in those routines. So Moises, from your personal standpoint, what are some of the potential benefits of switching to injectable treatment? And what considerations do you think people who are living with HIV should have when making that kind of decision? Yeah, I mean, number one would be that you don't have potential mutations that may limit your choices, that you understand what, you know, what's your viral law, but also what is your uh, genotype, phenotype uh, composition. But also, I, I think that if you are having struggle with adherence, like if you don't get to seem to get used to taking pills at a certain time or going to frequent doctor visits, you should talk to your doctor and consider that easier way that is every two months having to deal with getting your medication. Um, also, if you're having trouble at home, and when I mean adherence, in your routine, but also around you, if your circumstances are difficult enough that you don't feel safe 
in terms of when you leave your pill bottle, you know, that maybe the injector will give you an option to get out of, you know, those circumstances and adhere to your treatment when you go to the clinic. And also, if you see that you have some challenges in terms of viral low, achieving viral low, and this might be an option that will help you get there, that should be another consideration. Moses, I couldn't agree with you more. The other day, I, I had someone that was taking their pills and they weren't missing a dose. And they're like, Doc, I want the injection. We had talked about it because the pills remind me just of my diagnosis. They just remind me that I have something going on and I'm 30. Um, so can I try it? And I think there's something important as we evolve in terms of understanding these new products and they come out and we have trials and people like them and they don't. Trials meaning in the real world. I think it's important on an individual level and the community level to understand like there's a journey with this. I tell everyone, you know what, let's try it. If you don't like it, go back, maybe try it again. You know, maybe you'll end up liking it on the third time because you, that's your natural evolution of what you want to do with the injection. Maybe it's convenient now to do the injection. And then maybe five years down the road, you want to go back to the pill because you're traveling a lot and you can't get to the injection and get the prescription. So I just remind everyone to let's be flexible and Let's um, go with the flow as like new technology comes out. And I, I think that's important so that there's no heaviness, like, oh my God, we're going to switch. And like, oh my God, if it doesn't work out, like uh, it's going to be devastating or it's such a big deal to switch. I don't want to put that pressure on anyone, the provider or the client or like us as an ecosystem or a provider system or a healthcare system. Yeah. Some people see like, it's a commitment that you make. And maybe it's not when you are getting HIV treatment. You, you need to commit for the rest of your life to taking the treatment until we find a cure. And for some people, like you said, I, I have seen it too. It gets very heavy. And I think mostly for people that have gone through the many switches of treatment, you know, as they come along. And I like what you said about allowing ourselves to get familiar with our relationship with our treatment, because also, you know, if you do the every two months, it's important that you do those every two months. If you miss a dose, you know, I don't know what kind of a strategy you're going to have to weigh, do it immediately, do you still have in your system? So those are considerations that are best discussed, like you said, at an individual level. I think that's so important individuality piece that you just brought up because every person living with HIV is an individual being able to make an informed decision in your treatment and partnership with your clinic team really is one of the best ways for you to take this moment when you're diagnosed and then move forward in whatever way that you and your and your care team see fit yeah I think we touched on a few things so, some people just think about the pill stigma just the reminder of having to wake up in the morning, have an alarm, um, having the anxiety of like, did I take all my pills this week? Did I miss a dose? This is a constant reminder on a daily basis that may be interfering in their private life. So that's been one category of reasons that people, when we discuss the options out there, the next one is really 
they're having a hard time taking the pill every day. Life is chaotic. Um, schedules at work are changing. I've got a night shift today. I've got a day shift tomorrow. So we really talk about what's going on in someone's life month to month. And so we discuss, is this injection an option? And within this option, can we together work out a system, whether that's with transportation, scheduling, all the parts that you need to successfully take the injection on time? Can we do this? And I say we because it is a we system. Can we do this every two months or every month? And I think this is very important. It's the tribe. We don't know if we can do it every two months. We're going to do our best, but we got to try. And if someone's motivated to try, whether the provider and the person who is living with HIV, I think it's important to give it a shot. You know, I've personally found multiple times we've tried and, you know, we have to reload. Maintenance phase is shorter than we thought. And then we're switching to pills, but that's okay because we have to try and look at the successes and failures. And like, sometimes we load people twice and someone's like, you know what? I worked it out now with my work. You know, I got the schedule. I can come in now every Thursday, every two months, and let's make the plan for the whole year. And that way I got it, you know, and I, and I love that. And I think we have to build in that adaptation time to get a schedule and to be successful around this new modality. And we don't think about that a lot. And you know, it is my job to find transportation. If they tell me their car is broken down or they lost their insurance, it is my job to create that ecosystem and constantly dynamically be in tune and be like, let's get your ride share today, you know? And so I think it's adherence. And then, uh, you know, I think there's other factors that we're still finding, you know, emotionally, maybe there's something about the injection. Then there's some, something emotionally not about the injection, the needle phobia. And we actually go through several conversations. Um, maybe they're talking to a peer or they heard it from a friend. So then they want to take it. So I think there's a lot of different categories for why people are coming in. Convenience is another one. And who's eligible, Calvin? So this is really important. The FDA has created a label where um, you would want someone that has an undetectable viral load and no history of virologic failure to be initiated on this medication. And then we want to be mindful of also people's comorbidities. So other things people may have, we want to look at, do you have existing resistance where you cannot receive treatment with an integrase inhibitor or an NNRTI. And if you have those resistance patterns, you may not be eligible to take repivirine. Many centers are now reaching new states of viral load suppression because of the injectable. And we're reaching new people with the injectable and we're reaching new levels of suppression within certain groups, trans women, persons of color, persons who are using drugs in persons with substance use in different zip codes. Do we feel that the injectable art modality will have an impact on adherence rates? A hundred percent, hundred percent. We're already seeing the data. So I think this is important. Um, we've got sample sizes of, of 50 to a hundred, and now you'll start seeing a lot more studies with more numbers and the reason I say that's relevant because 
you know, I think it will help to change more guidelines. It'll help to change the FDA. No, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It will impact adherence. But I will add a consideration. As long as you have the support that you need to be, you know, successful in your adherence, it will have an impact, right? So I like what you, uh, when you talked about providing housing, if they need housing or transportation, but also keep in mind that, you know, if you are in a, in a clinic where you can provide all those services, great. But if you're not, that also it's important that you're familiar with the community-based organizations around you that provide these services. Because sometimes if they don't have it in one stop shop, so that will be important as a doctor to make sure that you know you understand the ecosystem of services around you and your clinic. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think it's also important to, you know, we all have to take into consideration the, the access point. Access is not everywhere. And while we certainly in the United States have a quicker access in some places, there are still some states that their health insurance, including mine, that won't allow you to access. There's such a human aspect added with that like complication to all of the other social determinants of health that impact someone's adherence and how they operate in these spaces. Do you feel that we will re-medicalization for HIV treatment itself? Well, do you think it'll pose a barrier to that adherence? That's a wonderful question. And I think there's a balance. I am confident as a community, together we're gonna figure out the balance for certain populations that could benefit from this the most. For example, I foresee a dawn of demedicalization to some degree because now um, I, as a provider, can take an injection out to people's homes um, and I can reach people in a way I couldn't because, you know, sometimes the rideshare would wait and my client, you know, still wasn't coming to clinic. And now perhaps if I was coming to them, or is getting to the shelter in a routine way, I would actually make it easier for people who were traditionally left out or consistently couldn't connect with me or my team or my clinic or any community-based organization. So I think that we really, really need to push the envelope on the policies surrounding the, the era of injectables and the era of implants, the era of these long-acting modalities where we can demedicalize it. So that means, can a peer give it? You know, this is not rocket science. It's an injection in a large muscle. If you do phlebotomy, which many peer navigators do, this injection is actually easier. So can we change the policy where in a very, you know, monitored environment so we can promote safety and high quality can we support peers delivering it or non-medical providers that traditionally may cause another level of stigma? Can we have it in different places? Can you get it at the pharmacy where you go get your chewing gum? Can I get it in a mobile van? Can I get it somewhere else so it's not a clinic where people know that when you go there, you're getting some type of treatment? Why is it that we're, we're going to give testing and we have all these really amazing testers out everywhere in the field. Why can't we now address the status neutral care continuum and the HIV care continuum to now deliver your injection? 
after we've diagnosed you or after we've gone ahead and followed up to see why you didn't come into clinic for your adherence and engagement? Why can't we bring the injection to you? So I'm excited that this may help us or force us to push the envelope for policies and diagnostics and technology that, you know, may help us demedicalize it. It's what you said. It it will require a really big change in our health system. Um, And that is, you know, that it will require, you know, having stakeholders like the insurance companies to, you know, work with the doctors, the clinics, the providers, the policy people to, you know, figure out a way in which the system can respond to those kind of technologies as they come along. And I'm with you. We should just go out there and ask for policies that will be responsive to that. Calvin, I do want to let the audience know that there are studies that are in the pipeline for home-based care and, you know, changing this product a little so it's easier. I think we're we're getting there. It's going to take time. But as a community, we need to accelerate those moves to making it more home-based or non-clinic-based or in a more, like, you know, as you said, not to re-medicalize the situation. Absolutely. So the history of ARTs suggests that when new options become available, we see a rapid migration to those options. In this instance, should we be protecting patient choice? Well, I think you need to make sure you you inform your patients about all the benefits or the potential side effects and also about how their ecosystem will respond to, you know, facilitating adherence to the medication. So, you know, I don't think that is black and white in the sense of like we either help you or we don't. I mean, I think that it's like we said before, find a balance in which we help the patient to make the right decision, right? Informed decision, not just following a fashion trend. I did that with the new fields at some point. So it's just about being informed. Just to build off that, we need as many products in the pipeline so that we can foster patient choice or, you know, just choice in general. And tailored programs to not only the individual, but the community. And with that, I want to remind everyone, choice is also dynamic. And while we have options, it is our ethical and moral duty and responsibility to let everyone know what the options are as they come about. And our field is changing so rapidly. Every conference, there's some some new technology where we're closer and closer. So I think there's the ethical responsibility of awareness and taking the time during each clinic visit or community session to say, this is the pipeline and this is where we are. And then also um, to acknowledge choice changes. So, you know, maybe my client's going to prefer the injection at home, but if I offer the injection in clinic, that's not an option for their chaotic, you know, schedule. So I think we have to acknowledge that It's our responsibility to talk about choice at each setting and to check in and say, how are you doing? What are the factors in your life right now that foster your engagement and adherence and persistence along this HIV care continuum or help you maintain your viral suppression? So I think choice 
is really important, but choice is dynamic and we're forgetting to check in at each visit and say, is this not working? I can change your meds. Very important that people don't feel that they fail their treatment, right? Like that, that if you have to go from one pill to two pills, it's nothing wrong with that. That is not a reflection of anything on you and you're getting the same potency and you know, because people get these perceptions that, you know, the best is the new, the best is what's next. And, you know, sometimes the best is what, you know, you have there that you were not able to use so that you can use back again. So finally, other art delivery innovations are on the horizon like we've talked about. Are you hopeful continued innovations will help get us closer to maximizing the impact of U equals U? I think so. I mean, I think we need to prime for ourselves for change and we need to prime the communities we serve. You know, I think when I come from a conference and I take the time and guess what? I went to this conference and there's all this stuff coming out and and it's going to be great. And I'm going to keep you informed about it. Or you can go to these websites. I think that's important. And I think with patient choice, we, we're going to get to like sustained levels of U equals U or sustained levels of reducing community viral load or transmission within a certain zip code that's promoting, you know, some of the incidents that we have in different parts of the U.S. or the world. I'm just scared we're going to think all these technologies are a magic bullet or the silver bullet. And we're going to forget about all the funding we needed to address social determinants of health. And as we know, we need more of the budget proportionately for that, because I think the ride share, the Lyft, the Uber, whatever we're using to get our client in the door is actually just as important. So I want to make sure we're not forgetting all the lessons we learned over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a process. We cannot think that with one new technology, you know, we're going to change everything at once, right? There are things that we're going to have to work on. uh, And like Rupa said, in social determinants of health, and also our intentionality to reach out and make sure they are available to the patient as they go into treatment. And also you made me think about you know, when you talked about taking the injection every month, the data that is building in people that have viral load detected, you know, that is an example of how we are building toward, you know, getting to that U equals U paradigm, if we want to call it that way. And also, it's going to help us to end the epidemic, right? And what you said about community viral load is so key in this regard. So yeah, I mean, I I think that every time we look to a new modality, we need to a brighter future. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Patel and Moises Augusto Rosario, for joining me today for this important conversation. It's more important than ever for us to be aware of the things that are here and the options that are available to us and what may come down the road. And that takes a partnership with our providers to understand and make informed choices, but choice is a powerful thing. And no matter what choice that you make, it's important that you know that whatever adherence modality you have to have, you're absolutely worth it. And it's not easy, but you are worth it. Hey, 
HIV Connect is made possible through educational grants from Gilead Sciences and Merkin Company, which has no influence over the podcast series topics, content, or speaker selection. To learn more about today's topics and other subjects, visit AIDSinfoNet at www.iapac.org backslash support backslash AIDS dash infonet or click the link in the show notes. As IAPAC's Senior Advisor on Community Engagement, I want to hear from you. You can email me at kpugh at iapac.org. You can also find out more about today's guests in our show notes. Until next time, please be kind and take care of yourself and each other.